Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. And man, was it a photo finish for me to get on the air. Uh, I had to put my child down, so not like down, like tranquilize it, but I had to put her down to sleep. So um, thank you so much for making me a part of your Thursday night. I know that the schedule has been a little bit cattywampus over the last couple of weeks. But we're starting to settle into a groove here, and uh, I didn't do a show on Sunday because I was doing some family stuff, as everybody should have been with the uh, benefits of a long weekend. should have been spending that with people other than myself. Unless you want to make me part of your Sunday, then absolutely any other Sunday but that one. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling here. Anyway, so joining me tonight on the podcast, good friend of the show, uh, Josh Wiley um, of the Journalistic Revolution. Uh, Josh, say hello to the fans out there. Hello. How's it going, Jake? Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for coming on. So, um, I hate to say I told you so, or we told you so, but um, let's dive right... There's a lot of we told you so's this week, but... <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, but if you're a new listener, go back and listen to the show archives. You know, don't belabor it too much. Find some stuff that we talk about Edward Snowden and all of these little revelations that are coming out are revelations that if you dug deep enough, meaning if you basically unearthed the topsoil, you would have found this stuff months ago that Edward Snowden was a contractor for the CIA, was doing covert operations in, uh, I believe it was, it wasn't Russia, was it? Where was it? I can't remember. I don't think he uh, specifies in this latest interview. He simply states that he was an agent for the CIA as well as the NSA, operating in, in a foreign covert manner, undercover with a false name. Yeah, which means true. that he was more than just a Booz Allen technical analyst. Ah, but. come on, man. They give everybody access to that kind of data, dude. It's just very curious uh, that Edward Snowden is now very liberal with these kind of uh, revelations about his personal past a year after uh, his initial whistleblowing began. Uh, you, you would almost think that in, in the interest of full disclosure, you would mention something like, I was an agent for multiple <laughs> intelligence organizations before working for Booz Allen Hamilton. But uh, That doesn't – listen, none of that stuff is relevant, Josh. The only thing that's relevant is that he told the American people what's going on. Not that William Benning, Thomas Draker didn't do that before, and even people like – Russell Tice. Russell Tice, Wayne Madsen, all of these guys that, um, yeah, this stuff has been going on for a while, but um, it was really, it was really kind of, um, I don't want to say it was a, because I don't really think that this guy's a, a very, anyway, I'm going to digress off into this guy. But when Steve Pachinik, who is former and in intelligence, high-ranking PSYOP officer, comes out and says the exact same thing that you and I said on the show, it made me feel one of two things. I was like, wow, this is either a double-edged PSYOP or we're actually really spot on on this one. And it turned out that the way that everything was kind of rolling out, you could only sit there and question, like, wait a minute, why is he so different than everybody else? What makes Edward Snowden such the such the man of mystery? And then you had the 
the where, as you like to put it, the where in the world is Carmen San Diego with Edward Snowden, where he's bouncing around and where is he? And then it became a fanfare about that and a fanfare about where he's going, what he's doing, who he's doing it with. The Russians have got him. No, they won't take him. And that's what it was all about. And now um, I think it was pretty much trying to acclimate the public into this idea that, hey, here's what we've been doing for a while. And this is just the way it is, and let's see what they do. And the public did absolutely zilch, except yep. for people like yourself and myself that try to somewhat protect our privacies, which is, I guess, a moot point. But And kind of a pipe dream in technocratic Amer- future America. But, you know, you can at least make it harder for the bastards. Excuse my French. Well, no, that's a very, that's a very a- apropos way to say it, is that you just make it more difficult for them. And so... What I'm doing over the next um, at the end of next month is I'm making it even more difficult for him and moving out into away from the the technical grid of Atlanta, moving into suburbia, actually outside of suburbia, into rural America, where I found out today, which I was very disappointed about, that I will only be able to probably get DSL out there. So this should be interesting moving forward. But anyway, at least as Ben, as ben Kenobi once said, this is your first step into a larger world. It is. It is the first step into a larger world of um, trying to stave off things that I think will be very big issues uh, in the next five years. Uh, number, well, one, number one, I don't think privacy is going to be a very big issue because as we come to these revelations and as we come to these, you know, these realizations that all the back doors have been built into the equipment already. All of this stuff is already in place. It's been in place since 1996. At, at the least, very, at the very latest. Right, at the least from the cell phone perspective from 1996, mm-hmm. and so now we're into this. Brand well, just, Jake, when, when did GCHQ start? Officially. Oh my lord. 1921, they were tapping telegraphs. Uh huh. That's correct. Across the across the Atlantic. Yeah. So at least a, a wire tapping program sanctioned by the American government has been going on at least since the early 1900s, probably gosh, earlier look at than that. Guys. Always, guys. All right. So anyway, enough uh, kidding aside. And for anybody that just joined the show, we are going to talk about Bilderberg. We are going to talk about this new document that came out that proves every document from 2010. Yeah, exactly. Everything that everybody already knew, but it just actually got leaked to the public now. And it's like the people that use this as as an Obama takeover kind of strategy. It is not about Obama. I mean, this is. I wish that we could really get past the political puppets that they trot out there in front of everybody for us to cast our stones at and cast our anger. Oh, damn you, Obama, for passing the NDAA, and damn you, Bush, for passing the Patriot Act. And Well, I think it's even sadder that we now have a lot of people that know it's a puppet show but are just enamored with the theater of it all and still get caught up in it. And if you ask them point blank, they would say, oh, yeah, I know how the game really works, or at least I think I know how the game really works. Sure. But but they'll still get wrapped up in this two-party dialectic, almost like it's, uh, like it's a sport. Or like they're trying to sell you water filters or something. Or mm. iodine. Big uh, Berkey? Say Big Berkey? Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually use it, and I use the iodine because I do understand the benefits of it. But... All kidding aside, it is um, yeah, it, it's very it's very difficult to um, to pull yourself away from the two party system and from the paradigm itself, 
and then when you have conversations with people about why you're doing the things that you're doing and, and what the future for me, Josh, is going to be sustainable living by myself um, with my own power sources and with my own water supply, my own filtration system, and hopefully my own vegetation, my own food, because as we just saw today, the World Bank is coming out and saying, get ready for the food prices to go up, get ready for all these things to go up worldwide, which if you've been studying this stuff for long enough, then um, this is kind of, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like a game of solitaire that all the cards are flipped up. You've, you've already figured out which place goes where, and you're just kind of waiting to move one stack to the next pile and then start flipping through your burn cards and find out which place you can, you know, place the other card because it really does move on like a machine. And as you and I talked about before, it's very, it's very disheartening to see the playbook, to see how things are going to unfold and then talk about how they're going to unfold. And when they start unfolding, it's, you know, somehow magic. Like, how did you guys... How did you guys know that Edward Snowden was an agent? Because it didn't look right. Nothing looked right. The fact that the mainstream media even picked it up just sent alarm bells off in my head saying that this this is um this is either the revelation of the method or this is just um some guy that's involved in a high level psyop against the American people. Aren't well, you- I mean, it let's let's say cuz I think it's to a lot of people within the alternative media's credit for coming out and laying out a fairly substantive case against Edward Snowden. You know, Tom Secker, uh, Sabelle Edmonds, um, uh, Dave Emery, all, all of whom added different kind of pieces of the puzzle to the table right. uh, on the Snowden case. But there's a big difference between, you know, just kind of setting up a, was Snowden an agent or wasn't he kind of dialectic? Because we do, there, are, there are a lot of deep political entities going or, or at work in, in that case. A lot of intelligence agents. Yeah, a lot of intelligence agencies, <laughs> but he's ve- he's very much like a, like a Kim Philby esque character, mm-hmm. where he I, I think it's fairly abundantly clear to me at least that this guy was certainly on uh, on the radar of, of of Russian intelligence as well. Sure, uh, whether or not he's be- he was being paid directly by them or was kind of uh, uh, an an agent provocateur uh, for Russian intelligence. I mean, these are these are all I think interesting connections that that need to be fleshed out more right and um i i I love the simple-mindedness and no offense please nobody take offense to this because i was part of i was part of this group at one point in time but i love the simple-mindedness of the american public it's like he's a good guy or he's a bad guy there's no in between it's like he can't be a double agent he can't be a shill he can't be any of these things it's either got to be right or wrong it's either black or white He's a Republican or Democrat. You play for one of these two teams, and that's the way it is. And that's unfortunately the paradigm that we've caught ourselves in is that now we don't have any – we don't have any thinking. We don't have any – and it was funny. We had a conversation, a really great conversation at the, at the dinner table with, uh, with my, uh, my parents and my, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law talking about – number one, we talked about the shooter this weekend – um, which is, guy's just a nutball, just absolute nutball. There's nothing you can do about people like that. So we talked about that a little bit, and we talked about why it's happening, and my whole point was this is the generation, no offense, Josh, this is the first generation. All of these shooters are under the age of 30. They're like 28 and below. All these guys are the people that grew up with the Internet. 
And so he's also he's also related to a Hollywood director. I understand you now. I understand. the son of a Hollywood director. I don't know. I mean, I I I'm not trying to trying to speculate with no information because I've only heard of it anecdotally. I don't really care, quite frankly. Yeah, me neither. But but at the same time, they're they're. Hollywood and the and the music industry have been kind of hotbeds for intelligence and military work for a very long time. So, I don't know. You never know about any of these things. Are you trying to tell me that Disney is a part of the subculture of MK Ultra and that these kids are on mind control that when they come out to be pop stars and they turn into these uh, what they call quote unquote monsters and they're probably just programmed to do so? I never. Well, I I don't know. I don't know about. Uh, Operation Monarch, right? Yeah, sure. I think I think it's really interesting, and I I think that there's like there's kind of a plausible chain of evolution from MK Ultra to Monarch, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and from Laurel Canyon to Monarch, quite frankly. Sure. Uh, and I'm not saying, and there's clear evidence that that a lot of shady things go on in the entertainment industry, uh, like organized pedophilia. Oh yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and fairly like fairly systematized pedophilia to the point where a lot of people know about it. And I mean that's that's not just America. That's uh, Great Britain yeah, as well, right? Yeah, the BBC and Whistle, you end up, you know, in Charlie a... Savile or Jim Jim Savile, Charlie Savile. Yep, Jimmy Savile. Jimmy Savile, that was it. Jimmy so Savile. Listen, we're, we're digressing off into a whole bunch. Yeah. All right, sorry about that, everybody. All right, so we're going to get back on track here, but um, the, the crux of the conversation was talking about how the generations are different, where where this whole society is going, and then I brought up my solution, which was uh, stop paying property taxes um, to move into a portion. Where you can have a sustainable home that will uh, allow you to skirt property taxes, uh, be able to once again provide your own stuff, and and it was very confusing because um, there are people that believe, and and rightfully so, because there's a lot of people in in the liberty movement that believe this way, and I guess that they would be considered big L libertarians that believe that um, that if you just you know just do what you can within the system. But then my argument was we already see that the system's rigged and that your vote has no weight whatsoever after that study that was even done by the Ivy League institution that was probably like just basically dangling in, in your face saying that hey here's here's the way it is you guys are an oligarchy now there's nothing you can really do but people still get fired up about local elections they still get fired up about things like that and I asked point blank he said, so you're not going to vote? And the question came up, and they're like, you're not going to vote? And I said, absolutely not. Why? Why would I? There's no point. Unless it was like a local election to elect a sheriff or something like that, and absolutely I would get out and voice my opinion because the odds of that being rigged are very, very slim. But in, in a national presidential election, give me a break. No chance. But, I mean that's, that's kind of the joke about the, the local political efforts as well is because uh, you know, as someone who has been involved – Twice with, uh, with with local politics, mm-hmm. you come to find that these positions of supposed authority, like mayoral offices, school boards, political, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 what's it called, uh, political caucus positions. Sure. Uh, the, these really are window dressing positions, and you have no real power. Uh, so even if you do want to exercise your supposed constitutional or, or local autonomy, what you'll find is that. It comes at the cost of either a large state or federal grant, which all comes from the same place, right? right. And then, and then you run into things like what happened here in Georgia. The people that um, there were, there was like six grassroots candidates for the Senate seat here in Georgia, and all of these guys were out there doing the thing, doing the deals, shaking hands, kissing babies, all that good stuff. And then, guess what happens? One super rich guy 
I'm not going to say who it is, but you guys can figure it out because it kind of won. Um, decides that he's just going to run a bunch of television campaigns. And guess who won? The guy that ran a bunch of television campaigns because people are spectators and they don't want to leave their house. And whoever they saw on the news that had some good, you know, he, I mean, shows up, dude, it's ridiculous. He shows up in like a jean jacket and he's out on this farm and it's just, it's, it's so terrible. He's a working man. Of course he is. Of course he's a working man with millions of dollars. That's dad. His dad was the former governor. So Did he, ta- he took the blue collar thing a little bit literally. Oh man, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll see some of the videos. It's absolutely astonishing. But bringing back the denim jacket. Yeah, he did. Back to um, digressing off into all this stuff. But really, what we're trying to get at, and actually, this is a pretty decent segue. Unlike Robert Wasman's, yeah, you heard that right, Robert. If you're listening, unlike Robert Wasman's hectic segues. He'll hear it on the replay for sure. <laughs> good, good. Hope he does. You know, take notes. This is how you segue. So let's talk about where the real power lies, Josh. Where does the real power lie? I mean, if we're if we're looking at it from a from a grassroots standpoint, um, I would say that Bilderberg is a steering committee just like any other. It, it does have a um, significance now because it's getting some media play. And what I mean by that is that when you see it in the media. It's typically, you know, pushed aside like it's no big deal. This is just something where guys go to to have some fun. And my argument is these are probably the most busy people on the planet, and they're clearing their calendar for four days and nothing's going to go down. Give me a break. I, I try to get meetings with CEOs and CFOs all the time. I can't get five minutes with them, and they're going to take four days to go off and, and chat about something. With no records and and no there's no agenda. We're just going to talk about this stuff. We're just going to talk about you know internet net neutrality. We're just going to talk about privacy. I mean, so from your perspective, Bilderberg, Global Comfab, or Steering Committee? Um, at various points in history, I think it served different purposes. Okay. Uh, and I think that during its evolution, of course, as you noted earlier on the phone, found it an organization founded by Nazis. Yay! Um, Don't worry about that. And if anybody wants to hear or read more about Bilderberg, uh, this is going to be a self-promotional plug. Go to my website, wearenotcattle.net, and read my write-up on it. And it's called uh, the the actual article is entitled "Why You Should Care About the Bilderberg Group." So anyway, go ahead, Josh. I was just saying uh, that, you know, but in Bilderberg's early days, which I would extend for, for you know, a fairly significant period of time, at least. Until from, like seven, like uh, 85? I'd uh, say it's founding through, on through the, I would, probably the mid to late 90s. And there hasn't really been that much heat on these people. Okay, uh, so 50 then. years. So 50 years they basically operated in secret and kind of ran around, did their own little deal. So go ahead. Yeah, so within that time period, uh, I don't think it's uh, outside the the realm of possibility that this really was kind of uh, a meeting of the of the inner circle uh, to to discuss certain policy directions and their implementation. Uh, whether or not that's kind of in a vague newspeak esque language, I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if this is you know major players coming together to to disseminate propaganda. Or if it truly is, again, more of a steering committee. That being said, uh, given uh, kind of the, the popularization uh, of, of Bilderberg in recent years, uh, to me, it, it seems, it would almost seem that the, it's used now more as window dressing mm-hmm. uh, to, to kind of fire up the, the troops on, on both sides for this, you know, big charade 
when there are there are parallel events, and James Corbett has covered this a couple of times. Uh, but there are there are similar kind of gatherings that happen on a yearly basis that that receive far less, if if not if not any coverage at all, right? Right. So there are plenty of opportunities for these people to have these kind of meetings. So I do think it's interesting that that Bilderberg is the only one that's really focused on these days. Yeah, and I think that. Um... When you when you see the guest list, obviously that's what pops out in your head. You've got um, managing directors of or the international director from Goldman Sachs. You got uh, General Petraeus. You got some former NSA people there. You got um, basically a who's who of the tech world. And and as we're seeing now, um, last year it was a big uh, it was a big hoopla about all the people from Google that were there. And now it's like a mixture of um, and now it's more of an eclectic group like it used to be, where it's politicians, military strategists, and banking elite. So anytime I see the – once again, anytime I see the managing director for Goldman Sachs International drop whatever the hell he's doing for four days and show up at an event, it might be somewhat significant. I'm just saying. But um, so – the history of Bilderberg is pretty interesting, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's going to get beat to absolute living you-know-what over the next couple of days from the alternative media and from you know podcasts like this one. But I do want to turn to, to something that I think that you shared with me today that I think has really good historical significance but also futuristic significance. And some of the things that are discussed in this article – are actually things that are that are typically brought up at these Bilderberg meetings, and that are, were brought up, you know, 20, no, not 20, good gosh, where am I going? About 150, 200 years ago, when this idea, this Rhodesian idea of pushing, pushing these people, pushing the the Western ideology all over the United States and all over the um, the Easternized world, and and using, uh, I guess. I guess little proxy city states in order to push this and try to globalize the world under one main idea. And now, whether it was you know whether it was the um, the uh, the Catholics and Christianity through Constantine, whether it's the Rhodesian Roundtable, we always see this this push to unify the world. And and for some reason, we just can't leave well enough alone because of what we're up against, and that's a bunch of kleptocratic, um, self-indulged jackasses that think that you're worth absolutely nothing and really don't care about you. All they care about is profit. And the more that I read, um, the more that I read about the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, um, the Harrimans, Carnegie, those guys where they were funding both sides of a war, they really didn't care who won the war. They just basically went to war so they could make money and, and, and have contracts and then set up apparatus in order to extort money from other people and to enslave other nations and and put them under their control. Now we're looking at something that you and I are very very afraid of, and that's neo feudalism, which is what your your article that you share with me from Zero Hedge was about. And it says, um, and I'm going to read a little bit of this, and this is from Tyler Durden, and then I'm going to get Josh to comment. So I'm going to read about half of this article, and then we'll comment, and then we'll pick up the rest of it. And it says the middle class will die within 30 years, leaving a wealthy elite and a sprawling proletariat. Um, where have you heard that before? Oh, probably day one of this podcast and moving forward. Okay, so here's what, uh, here's what the article says. 
If we continue down this path of ignorance, a.k.a. getting distracted by stuff that we can't control like climate change, because they've already said even if climate change, anthropogenic global warming, I will give you guys credit. If anthropogenic global warming does exist, there's already nothing we can do, so just whatever. I mean, that was the thing that they came to last night. It was there's this big revelation that there's nothing we can do about the melting ice caps in the Arctic. So basically Miami is just going to be gone in 200 years. So, But my whole point is that you're not going to have a Miami in 200 years. You're going to have some weird city-state where you're going to have to work three jobs. And Anyway, here we go. Continuing on this path of ignorance, we will have a tiny elite with a huge sprawling proletariat will have no chance of clawing their way out of a hand-in-mouth existence. This is why communism is so bad, everybody. And the loud and clear message from the UK government advisor David Boyle. As the Telegraph reports, Boyle cautions we won't know our own home. We won't we won't we won't own our own homes. We won't be able to afford it. Adding that Cheered the rise of property. We cheered the rise of property taxes, but not realizing that it would destroy, if not our lives, our lives of our children. He concluded the middle class have to wake up to prevent it from happening and to create a political movement to do that. And this is the actual article by the Telegraph, and then I'll get Josh's comment here in a second once I get to the first paragraph or give him the first uh, quote. The middle class will die in 30 years because of rising property taxes, which rob today's children of their dreams and economic warranted. David Boyle, economic or government advisor and fellow New Economics Foundation think tank, which the left will probably say is some Koch brothers funded group that's just trying to scare us into capitalism. I'm actually looking at their funders list right now. Good, thank you. Well, we'll get an update on that here in a second. So the youngsters have no, or no longer can expect to live the same affluent as their parents, which is kind of funny because what I see here in America, especially watching these shows where they have like the first-time homebuyers and stuff, these kids that are like 25, 30 years old want to have homes just like their parents with like four bedrooms and two bathrooms, and, and I want to have a two-car garage and nice acreage, and I want to pay $200,000 for it. Well, you guys are all delusional, and you just – you think that – that life is just going to teleport into your lap and you don't have to work for anything anymore. And that's just not the case. So continuing, speaking to speaking at the Hay Festival, he warned that Britain would be left to a tiny elite and a sprawling, huge proletariat who have no chance of crawling their way out of a hand-in-mouth existence. He predicted that the average home price would cost $1.2 million in euros by 2045, putting the home beyond the range of most people as wages fall and to keep up with huge increases. Boyle said that the traditional middle class will need three or four jobs just to be able to pay the soaring rents, and people will no longer have space and time to persuade culture, to pursue cultural interests. He blamed the bankers' bonuses and artificial inflating property market. Oh, imagine that. Imagine that the bankers are the problem, Josh. Hmm. The scary thing is, in the next 30 years, housing prices are as much as they have done in the last 30 years are going to be um, around $1.2 billion, he says. And then we're going to skip all these because these are the same quotes I just read. All right, so Boyle claimed that the major problem was Margaret Thatcher's abandoning the supplement special deposit scheme known as a corset, which, only, which limited how much banks could lend for mortgages. Although the scheme kept prices low in the 1970s, Boyle said it was unlikely that today's buyers would accept having to wait a few months for a mortgage. This is very correct, and that's the culture that I'm talking about now. It's the, it's the on-demand culture. It's the give-me-it-to-me-now. I have no chance to, 
have delayed ratification, which is a psychological imbalance, by the way. All right, so let's talk about this, Josh. I'm going to stop right there. Let's talk about this. All right, so any uh, any idea who these funders are? Well, I was I was just looking over the list on neweconomics.org that they provide uh, of their top funders, uh, and I there there aren't any real names that jump out at you. One of them is James Skinner, who was a uh, former McDonald's CEO and he's current or vice chairman and he's currently uh, the chairman of Walgreens. So two, he's been involved in two rather dubious. Uh, ethical businesses before, but that you know is not necessarily indicative of anything. Uh, I do find it very interesting that while the article itself is on point, the gentleman later goes on to. Yeah, to let me finish up here because it's only a couple of paragraphs. I gotcha. All right, so didn't mean to cut you off, but he predicted that without uh, such radical solution, mortgages would be be inherited and only be paid off by the grandchildren of the original owner. We are rationing mortgages since the 70s. We kept prices low. didn't know if we would accept it time again that you have to wait. Boyle said the rise of UKIP was fueled by disaffirmation of the middle class. He saw a huge revolt. I think what happens when you suppress the dreams of the middle classes, you get a rather particular, very dangerous political movements beginning to emerge. Oh, so now we're dangerous for actually wanting to have a stable economy and real lives and stuff. That wouldn't, that doesn't forgive the people for voting in the neo-fascists. Oh, so now we're neo-fascists. But that I think he's probably referring to the actual neo-fascists in most Western Europe. Oh, okay, so like the Ukraine and stuff. Yeah. I thought he was still talking about Ukraine. And Greece and Spain and Italy. And oh, yeah. Or no, in Italy, they just appoint like the, the prime minister as being a chairman of Goldman Sachs because you don't need an elected government anymore. Very unequal societies, very, un, very inflationary societies. And the end drives out to some degree the society until... It becomes very flat and very desperate. The middle class have to wake up to prevent this from happening, create a political movement to do so. I don't think that UKIP is it, really. Well, I mean, it's a good start. You could say that it doesn't matter and that it's more classless society would be a good thing. No. No, that wouldn't be good. Not for the robber barons. I think there is no place in the middle class to, that anywhere to go and claw their way out of a desperate hand-to-mouth existence in that pre in. <coughs> In the, excuse me, precariat. Thank you. I was burping, and then you had to, I appreciate that, too. Don't sweat it. It was a big burp, I thought. (laughs) Then the, then the, or excuse me, then that condemns us all to the precarious existence because there is no ladder. All right, so, all right, now I continue with your thought, Josh. I, I agree with what you were saying before, so continue. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the, some of the gentleman's proposals to, to fix this solution, it, like creating a parallel housing market where new homes were sold at the initial price for a hundred years, like <laughs> this is a this is a little bit silly, right? Yeah, that's that, a dream. Yeah, yeah, it's market manipulation on an unprecedented scale. And hey, you know, you know that gold that you paid fifteen thousand dollars for? We're just gonna sell it to you for fifty cents, like it was back in nineteen twenty. <laughs> So, so that that's a little bit silly, but the uh, the article itself does bring up a very good point, and it, it's it's just funny that uh, this kind of Orwellian class structure, which really is kind of a Hindu caste system, uh, is manifesting itself through kind of the vision of Aldous Huxley. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
where the the stratification is very much the same uh, and is is ready for the jackboot of of authority, but mm-hmm. it has organized itself based on largely voluntar- voluntaristic means. So where do we go, man? So that's that's the hundred million dollar question. We understand that so the woods. Yeah. Well, where you will eventually be fried by giant robot death lasers, courtesy of H.G. Wells. Seriously, read it, people. It's called The New World Order. It's a book by H.G. Wells. It's totally fiction. Check it out. It's totally fiction. <laughs> oh, man. What planet did I end up on? Okay, so let's... I really think that you know, going back to to Bilderberg and, and these and the elitist class of the world, I think that um, the one thing that I do like about Bilderberg, even though all the fanfare is created, and it has turned into kind of like a paparazzi deal, is that at least at least it gives you an idea of what these people think. Now, Luke Radowski and um, Dan Dix, who are both independent journalists were beaten and arrested the first was it the first night that they were there i haven't read the entire entire. i didn't hear anything about this oh my lord we'll have to pull that up somewhere all right so luke radowski got beat up by the police yes private security and dan and dan dix the guy from press for truth in canada oh wow they both got they both got who scowled the first like I think the first night that they were there. He really went into the fire this time. Yeah, that is actually a really great documentary. It's almost it's a very good documentary. Yeah, that will show you what the police state really looks like. Everybody, you know, you try to protest, not you get clubbed. Actually, they were trying to sing O Canada. They were trying to sing the national anthem, and the Darth Vader cops come through and start whacking people with billy clubs and shields. Right. My- my favorite part is when they flip the guy in the wheelchair and then proceed to billy club him. Oh, yes. And yell at him to stand up after they're done. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, because that's what crippled people do. They walk. That's what uh, Canada's finest, man. It's unbelievable. So, but getting back to the Bilderberg thing and and I'll um I'll look up the Dan Dick stuff here in a second, Josh, and I'll let you take the take the calm for a little bit, but um <clears throat> It does really give us an idea and the insight of how they like to insulate themselves from reality and how the media plays the game with them. I think that that's the most important thing that we can point out. Like I said, the NPR article looked like it seriously looked like something that was cut and paste off the Bilderberg website. It gives background on who they are. It talks about the founding of it. It talks about how long it's going. It talks about what they do. And then it's just like, Basically, anybody that thinks that these people do anything else other than just chat about this squash game next Saturday is a tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist. So, you know, once again, 150 of the most powerful people in the world clearing their calendar for four days. If you think that that's fishy, you're a conspiracy theorist. So, I don't know, man. I really do... I enjoy the fanfare of Bilderberg now, or at least what it's turned into. When you actually have media there streaming live and stuff like that. And there was a guy that um, was watching Alex Jones' show today. There was a guy that got um, that got beat up on camera for just having a camera on the sidewalk, taking pictures of the cops. So the cops run over, grab the guy, drag him across behind this metal, like behind this uh, concrete barricade, and start beating him as the journalists all sit there with their cameras. And then the cops see the guys filming them beating the crap out of this guy with a camera. And so they start chasing the other journalists down the street. It is absolutely crazy town. 
So here's the question. Like, you, the private security, you, the police, why? Why do you do that to people? I, I don't understand this appeal to authority. Josh, can you enlighten me on on what kind of mentality this has? Is it is it that I'm I'm doing my job? Is it Hey, he, big tough guys. Hey. Yeah. That's it. I mean it's a tough guy. Oh, cool. I can make I can make seventy five thousand dollars a year being a bully. Great. I've been a bully my whole life. Or Let's the do it. exact opposite. Or they were bullied their entire life, and now... And now they want to be bullies. Yeah, exactly. Right, and they just get on a little power trip. I got yeah. a couple of friends of mine that are cops that are actually aren't either one of those two, but... Uh, I mean, but those, the the people, and I've met plenty of cops that, that weren't. I've, I've trained, uh, you know, doing martial arts with, with a lot of cops mm-hmm. uh, that, that were good people. And, and, you know, took it out, took a time out of their day to, you know, train their bodies and, and their minds to to be up to the task because they were really about the protect and serve and stuff. Right. But it's ultimately either group thing sets in or you do have to, uh, you have to meet quotas. You have to, you have to follow the, uh, the authority of your superior officer. And but, by the way, this is a shameless plug. Josh Wiley turned me on to this show it's called the wire. It is an incredible portrayal of what really goes on in society. It really is. It is the most factually accurate show that I think I've seen about real life between the drug war, the cops, the the politicians that play into it, and then the power structures within each, which I think is very, very dynamic and very interesting. So if you haven't checked out The Wire, um, go find yourself a copy of that because it it's a very fascinating show. And I'm How far in, are you? I'm only halfway through the first uh, the first season, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I've, I'm sure I've got a lot of twists and turns left to go, but um, just watching it, I'm just sitting there, you know, looking at and and the quote that you said is very very true. The king stay the king, where he talks about how um, the anyway this to digress into the show a little bit. These two guys are playing they're playing checkers with a chess set, and one of the the main um, characters comes up and asks them what they're playing checkers for, so he teaches them how to play chess. And so at the end, um, he's like, so you capture the king. And the guy's like, so you kill the king? He goes, no, no, no. The king stays the king. You, know, you don't kill the king. And that's basically what happens in society. The, the people that are the ruling class stay the ruling class. They, they have figured out how to, manipulate, um, how to manipulate markets. They figured out how to get you to pay attention to things like celebrities and and not care about politics and that was the big push by um that was the big push in propaganda was it not that they were going to they were going to shift the focus from the american people and the world to celebrities and not to world real life politicians people that actually make yeah, yeah. decisions that change your life people people used to value inventors and great minds and adventurers and and that was a very it was a very brief period of time where the transition happened from admiring, you know, truly heroic or, uh, you know, qualities like intellect uh, to this kind of Babe Ruth, uh, Ty Cobb, celebra- celebrity uh, sports image and, sure. you know, for the, for the men and the, and the high fashion and movie stars for the women. And it's not like we're just sitting here making this up. This is actually pretty well documented. Yeah, but it's it's very interesting that you bring up that scene from The Wire because when D'Angelo kind of outlines this when he sees them playing checkers on a chess set, he tries to tell them that 
chess is a much better game. Right. You know, there's a lot more going on here. And uh, it was at the point when they started to realize the parallels within their own lives that they kind of backed off, right? Right. Because Bodie, Bodie, the pawns. Yeah, Bodhi kind of realized that he was a pawn, so he that was his next his next next question. He's like, "Well, how do I how do I stop being a pawn? You know, can I cap the king? Can't I can I be the king?" And he's like, "No, no, no, it doesn't work like that. You're a pawn. The best a pawn can do is become a queen. You can become a sergeant. Right. You can become a high officer in the military, but you're still doing the wet work." Right. Right. And 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 that's when he's like, "Wow." Wow. And I mean, you're right. It does those hierarchical institutions, whether it's on the street or in the in the police agency or later on, you see in the schools and the unions, it's very much the same. Mm-hmm. And it all fits into something larger. Oh, well, did you just make a a pyramid shape there with your hand? I don't. Yeah, that was something interesting. Mm-hmm. So and it's very it's very um, it's I think it's fascinating to to study human psychology and the psychology that that puts people, and it's you know a combination of groupthink, peer pressure, and and all these other things that that'll allow people that are like you said the, that are at the top of the pyramid to stay at the top of the pyramid with the with little or no pushback. Kind of like once again what we're seeing at Bilderberg, you have no mainstream media coverage. So if the mainstream media doesn't cover it, you have generations that are older than yourself and myself that believe that we're just, you know, talking, you know, talking bupkis here because it's, well, if, I mean, if it was important, it'd be on Fox or it'd be on CNN. And it's like, well, Jake Tapper did do a four minute segment on it and basically shoot it away towards the very end. But he at least covered it pretty fairly and said that, hey, this is, you know, a bunch of guys meeting in secret for four days and behind a bunch of barricades and armed guards and stuff like that. But at the end, yeah, you're still a conspiracy theorist if you think that something's going on there, something nefarious, excuse me. These people are just in it for your best interest because that's what politicians do, Josh. Jake, and I I really think, you know, clearly you and I know, and I think that the listeners to your show know that Bilderberg is is an event that's been going on since, you know, was it 1956 when the organization was founded? 60th year, buddy, 1954. You're really close, though. All right. I was close. I'm doing it from memory. But, uh, you know, because I have not really followed the coverage of Bilderberg this year, and, and quite frankly, a lot of that is because, uh, you brought up the term groupthink, which I, I think is interesting, because I want to pose kind of a question. Sure. In that, I think that the alternative media, uh, in creating a spectacle around Bilderberg, really engages in a lot of the a lot of the things that they they decry mm-hmm. when it comes to Bilderberg. It really is kind of this, uh, you know, two are, minute, three people, minutes hate. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of the people in the liberty movement uh, do that as well. People uh, absolutely, and it's of, it, um, people that have individualistic values. But they get involved in the celebritarians, and they they worship the people telling them how to live free instead of living free themselves. Well, I think it, absolutely. But at a at a, a gathering like Bilderberg that has now again become such a spectacle, mm-hmm. uh, it's wonderful that we have all this technology to you know live stream Bilderberg, which is interesting, right? I mean, if you could live stream the conference room, then I might be interested. Right, but, right, right, right. But it's like, what, what is it instead? It's a bunch of people sitting watching a webcam so they can watch Alex Jones and a few other people scream at cars of people who may or may not be the individuals in question driving into this meeting, and that's how you're going to spend your day. You're at the place, on the ground, like, you should be, uh, I don't know, interviewing people who worked at the hotel before, asking about the security procedures, learning things about the organization, waiting to, to kind of make judgments before documents come, kind of come out and then piece things, 
things together as it goes along. But it's not journalism. It's it's a it's a it's fanfare. It's a festival. Look at what they did in London yet last year when they had the event outside the gates, and then they had literally a stage set up where there's the these alternative speakers. And I'm not saying that these are bad things by any any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it's. It's a very it's very frustrating to see the group think go down and then to realize that for with all that productive manpower there there wasn't any real journalism going on either. Well, I mean, and it becomes a um it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy when you when you do things like that. I mean, obviously if you're going to go there to cover it, that's really great and if you can get some intel on what they talked about, then that's very newsworthy. And if you can get some, you know, quantifiable sources that can substantiate the claims and and you know you can get um you can get your uh, your two pieces of uh, your source data then absolutely then that's something that you should run with and that's something that the public and should everybody should know but um, getting back to what you were saying about making it a, a fanfare and and a just a, a kind of like a a festival so to speak i think that you know when we're we're talking about what we're trying to do here is that you and I have both gone a very, very similar path. And the fact that I went from from learning about this information about six years ago. Good God, I cannot believe it's been six years. Actually, it's longer than that, seven years ago. So I went from learning about this information seven years ago to immersing myself in it a couple of years ago to coming out the other side of the info and saying, okay, I can do something. Let me go hold a sign and protest. Let me go hand out flyers. Let me go do this. And all those things are great because if you can get one other person to at least acknowledge the fact that they don't know something, then they're going to maybe go research it themselves. But then you go from that to understanding that the only way to defeat a system that surrounds you is to withdraw from the system, and to withdraw from the system not just monetarily, but you have to withdraw from the system emotionally and mentally. You can't let the system dupe you. Don't listen to don't listen to the system. Don't listen to the propaganda. Don't listen to it. It's all white noise. It should be all just be background noise to you, and just move through your life and try to educate other people. And that's the only thing that we could do because if we get enough educated people then they're going to educate their kids, and then the system fails. Because you've done your job in educating yourself, educating your child, explaining to them how things work, explaining to them the trivium, the quadrivium, and teaching them things like that where they can look at things and say, no, 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 you can't use that argument. That's a logical fallacy. And then people will get frustrated and be like, well, no, 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 this is truth. No, 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 it's not truth. It's subjective truth. So therefore, it is not truth. And then so you, you, can, you can teach people how, how everything can be um, subjective fact, but there cannot, cannot be subjective truth. There can be subjective facts because facts can be skewed. Truth is only one way, and that is through unsubstantiated, unmitigated, pure veritas. And that's what we're trying to get to, in, and at least what I'm trying to get to in my life. And, and if we can do that... For each other, if you can do that for me, if I can, do, and if you can do that for yourself, and like I said, you can pass it on to your children. Now we have something. The battle is won in the mind, and unfortunately, when you look around here in America, um, America has had the crap kicked out of them for about the past 20 years. And most people, I guarantee you, Josh, I bet if I went out and did a man on the street tomorrow, I bet people don't know how far away, um, how many planets away the Earth is from the sun. 
No, of course not. Americans are just dumb and dead inside anymore. And it's it's really sad because we had such a great culture for a while. I mean, we had a culture of liberty. We had a culture of understanding. We had a culture of, hey, police states are bad. We had a culture of, hey, big government's bad. We had a, a culture, a, an entire culture that was like that. And then, then you had the... The overwhelming, like, really weird, bizarro Bush administration slash Clinton administration where it was like, we're going to grow government. And we're going to do these things. And, 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 you know, I'm a big government Republican. I actually heard people say that before. It's like, I'm a big government Republican. So let me – what? They're like, well, I'm for big government and for wars. I'm like, so you're a fascist. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm a big government republic. It sounds much better, right? Doesn't it? The, yeah. I mean, now you just you, you play both sides of the coin and everything's fine. Yeah. So I well, want a little ramble right there. Go but, ahead. No, but one of the things uh, that that you were touching on, I'm glad that we made that connection with with like ten or twelve minutes left because it kind of ties back into what we were talking about with uh, the Bilderberg uh, events, and I think it can be extended to all kind of protest movements and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's something that Mark Passio talks a lot about in his research, where he says that you know it's uh, that that you know, true enlightenment and true progress is the is the unification of of of, of thought and emotion as well as action, right? And that that thought and emotion can be can be driven by many different things, you know, provided that you have kind of uh, a filter for logical fallacies and for deception using the things like the trivium and quadrivium methods. Um, <clears throat> but th- it's just th- there is. What it, what's really more effective and what, what brings us to these kind of true solutions that we're talking about to, to, to all these issues that, that are being discussed behind closed doors at things like Bilderberg? What's a more productive use of your time? You know, I- engaging with your community, looking through uh, your, your local code enforcement and, and figuring out ways to kind of push the boundaries for, for sovereign living and setting up an alternative infra- infrastructure or, or screaming at, at Alex jo- with Alex Jones outside of the gates of, of Bilderberg, right? It's, you can, it's, I, I understand that a lot of people have a lot of animosity for these folks. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm kind of beyond that because I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't hate a rabid starving wolf for tearing me to shreds, right? It's a predator. Sure. That's, what it, that's what it is. So <laughs> when predators run your society, like, I, I guess I can't, I can't fault them. I just view them as some, as, is kind of inherently broken in a sad kind of way. That being said, though, it, it's easy to hate them. So you can direct your hate in a very irrational and non-productive way by screaming outside at, at limos as they drive into this fucking place. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. That's or what... or you can be raising backyard chickens illegally. Right. Both of which both or... of which may get you beat up by the cops. Right. But one is far more productive than the other. Right. Or having solar panels that are on the grid. So mm-hmm. I mean, you have to. And I'm not advocating for any of these things, though. E- eventually, I want to practice these in my in my own personal life because I I see that as the ultimate form of resistance. You know, like you said, it, it's it's um, and I understand you'll meet great people there and you'll meet like-minded people. Maybe that's where it starts. Maybe maybe Occupy was a great idea because you're going to meet people that have a, a, a same ideology as you. But if you don't take it a step further and say, okay. We all think the same way, kind of like what's going on the Free State Project up in New Hampshire. We all think the same way. Let's move to this place. Everybody buy property here, and let's set up this kind of community. And I think that maybe we'll get there eventually, but the the masses, unfortunately, are not ready for 
to to break with their their standard of living number one, their ideas of society number two, and just their preconceived notions of what life is supposed to be. That's why I've actually got uh, my interview tied up for tomorrow with Thomas Campbell, and I'm going to get into a lot of philosophical and metaphysical stuff with him tomorrow because I want to know if it's something that we can do in this reality frame that can affect the overall picture and the overall consciousness. Can we shift it? Can we shift the consciousness, once again, by enlightening ourselves and enlightening each other? Can we shift it to actually take shape to where we can get people involved in a in a movement not just the new age movement like you and i know that is just you know the secret and all a bunch of thinking and feeling and wishing and hoping and no action can we do something that could spark a response like you see with all these spontaneous protests like in france i think they just had a protest in france today about about um well, about their tax rate, I'm sure, because it's just astronomical. But I also I mean, don't think there's any such thing as a spontaneous protest. Well, that's probably very true too. I mean, that's a, and it's not that you're being negative. I think that you're being very rational about that. Oh, and I, just think, I just think mass movements are always organized and have been throughout human history. So, I mean, how do you do it? So, we got five minutes left. How do we break these chains? Is it is it through the individual? Is it through or is it through what um, what most people would um, – and I don't mean to stereotype them, but hell, this is what you guys do to us all the time. Is it what the people at Occupy want to do, and that's point guns at us to make us think differently? No, absolutely I mean, not. I mean I don't want to – The state of this and say this is the way that we need to do things, and this well, is how things are going to shape – I mean, that that gets into a whole other kind of intellectual and ideological debate, which sure. I think that is beyond the scope of this discussion. Mm-hmm. Because at the, sa- at the same time, like, I, I, at, at heart, I'm an anarchist, and I sympathize more with kind of anarcho-capitalist or agorist principles. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, I think that anarcho-syndicalism and other forms of anarchic communism uh, take uh, some of the organizational issues of rebellion a lot more seriously. Sure. Right? When, when, when anarcho-capitalists and small libertarians just say, well, get rid of it, and, and the market will kind of fix things, and there's going to be some bumps along the road, but it'll turn out okay. It's like, you have to realize that, yeah, if we started off on a fairly level playing field, then things would evolve as such, right? right? Correct. But we're, we're starting off on very uneven footing, so the, anarcho-ca- the anarcho-communists and syndicalists are saying, well, hey – you need forced collective organization to at least defend yourselves. Right. So, so to a certain extent, yeah, I think as revolutionary philosophies or even evolutionary philosophies, they've got a little bit more figured out than, than the jokesters. Right, and that's one of the things that I used to talk to Jonathan Dance about a lot. Was, um, he's, a devout, um, he's a devout communist, and he would talk about that the libertarian philosophy is, is flawed, and I would agree with him that the libertarian philosophy is flawed because of exactly what you said, that's that... You have to get the power out of the oligarch's hands first, and then you can start divvying up society if you want to take it that route. If you want to take it to the individual route, we can go that way. But we have to first figure out how we're going to get the the banking system under control, how we're going to get the levers of power away from the people that have had it for hundreds if not thousands of years. How do we do these things without there being violent repercussions? And there almost isn't a way… Because if you withdraw from the system, like you and I have talked about before, if we all withdraw from the system, guess what? Violent repercussions. If we all rebel against the system, violent repercussions. The state is always violent. That's all it can do is be violent. 
I mean, until it can't, right? Uh, until right. it just it can no longer do it. But I mean, that's that's one of the important things that is uh, that sticks out in my mind. It's like, uh, to me, collectives are should, the most successful collectives, at least in driving social progress, are are pointed. Uh, they have very limited aims, uh, kind of simplistic means of accomplishing them, and people who all have a bunch of different ideas but agree on one thing, sure. right? So, and then they, 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 they come together and then they dissolve very quickly. And I think that those are, those are things that kind of have to evolve during, during an evolutionary period of social change. And we're a little bit, we're not, we're not near that yet, at least in America, which is a little bit sad. But in terms of a baseline solution, sovereignty, true sovereign living, withdrawing yourself from, from you know, the electrical grid, uh, the ca- cars, food production, even medical production to a certain extent, all of these things. And I'm not saying do them all at once. And for some people, a lot of these things aren't an option, but everyone can do some of these things. And a lot of people can do all of them if they really, really want to. They might have to make some sacrifices, and it's certainly going to be hard, you know, essentially living as a modern homesteader. Um, But that's the ultimate thing is the infrastructure has to be in place. And the people that do that are going to be the only alternative to the grid-based infrastructure for food, for, transfer, for transportation, for, 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 uh, for manufacturing, for all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's going to have to be these people that kind of venture away from society first because we, we both know that over the course of the next 20 years, sovereign living, at least, or depending on sovereign livers, for a lot of people in the country, uh, the sprawling proletariat, as Zero Hedge calls them, mm-hmm. um, that's going to be their only option. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's going to be a matter of necessity. And the only difference between now and the Soviet Union, and we've talked about this a number of times, Jake, um, but the Soviet Union kind of used their industrial power uh, against, against the, the centralized authorities yep. to, to, to start a black market. And we have nothing like that in this country. No, no. And that's one of the things. That, and I actually heard Alex Jones say this today, which makes – which actually I wanted to applaud – but I was driving. He said that um, we have to keep using cash. And the reason that we have to keep using cash is keep cash alive because if a cashless society comes in, it's game over. It literally is game over because then you have no say of where your money is. You have no say. They have to – if you at least have cash, they have to at least physically come and take it from you or somebody has to take it from you physically. There has to be a physical confrontation. If it is all digital, if it is all in an encrypted whatever – well, this is why I always advocate for competing currencies and things of that nature because the more competition you have, the more um, methods for trade that you have, the easier it's going to be for people to get the goods that they need. And if you go to, if you go to something that's just a stagnant, you know, cashless society, then it's, then it's over. They can make your tax rate whatever you want. What are you going to do? And if they take your guns away, then you really can't do anything. So I don't understand why people want to be disarmed and just have this blind faith in the state that the state will always do what's right. And it's kind of like, um, oh gosh, who was that guy that I was listening to? It was a um, he was a he was a former manager at uh, Capital, and we're going to run a little bit over because I want Josh to finish his point. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you're listening on the stream. Uh, on Blog Talk Radio, we're going to be um, done here in about 50 seconds, but you can catch all the uh, all the stuff, all the rebroadcasts at wearenotcattle.net. Uh, follow me on Twitter, we are not cattle the number one, and like me on Facebook or be my friend on Facebook. I got a lot so, of friends, and I'm very friendly. 
Are you streaming still on JRev Radio? Uh, not currently because we had some issues with the stream. Ah, so wonderful. Let's see. Uh, I can try to reconnect. Um, yeah. So we were streaming on JRev Radio, but we've had some issues with the stream. So if you're listening there, thank you. If you're listening on LMR Radio, thank you very much. Wherever you're listening, thank you very much. And that is going to be it for the arable transmission. And uh, once again, check the archives. And check me out Sunday, 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Same place. Find me. I will see you guys on the flip side. All right, so there went that. And I can't connect to the stream. Mm. Anyway. All right, so where was I before I went through all my plugs and stuff? Good Lord. Sovereign living. Yeah, trying to just dial it back. Competing currencies. Thank you. National society. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so they can take everything if they take your guns, and that's one. The one thing that I can't figure out is that uh, the blind, yeah. I'm fast-forwarding a little bit. The blind faith in the state, and the guy from Bain Capital was talking about that also. He said that um, He said that these people that he would go visit in these other nations where the government would control the economy, that people just had this deluded idea that um, he was like, well, what happens? He's like, you can't, this is unsustainable, what's happening in Greece. They're like, no, 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 the government will make sure that everything's okay. We don't have to worry about that. The government will take care of it. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is like the absolute worst case scenario is that your government can't control it and it's going to crash. And so it was the similar thing to what happened in Japan when they had the inflationary period back in, in the 1990s where every, everything was going to be Japanese and Japan's the new sprawling empire and then it just crashed and it was the same philosophy over there that the government will save us, the government will do something. And I think that um, that's the main, I guess, the main marker of somebody that's a true little L libertarian is that we don't sit here and wait for the government to do something. We take actions in our own hands and we start thinking of other successful ways that we can live outside of the system once the system does come to a grinding halt or if it has a, a, an astronomical slowdown, which we're, which we're due for and, and hopefully we, we don't see any time in my lifetime, my daughters or my granddaughters, that we can somehow right the ship here. But I think that we've been... Uh, I think the oligarchs have bitten off too much in too many places and are just, like you said, they're vampires. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hate to break it to you, but you're absolutely going to see it within your lifetime. Uh, you're, you're seeing it right now. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it, and it, uh, again, I hate to be the Debbie Downer, but it's not. Uh, I think this kind of meme that's, being, that's been promoted in the alternative media now, at least since, uh, since the 2008 financial crisis, of kind of complete fiscal insolvency, dollar collapse, loss of the... Uh, of the world reserve currency status overnight, all of these kind of things mm-hmm. are uh, are not how it's going to go down, you know, because in large part, uh, a lot of our society is run by Fabian socialists, people who masquerade as things that they're not and, and accomplish their goals uh, slowly over a long period of time, kind of in the shadows, right? And that goes for the Rhodesians as well as for a number of other internationalist-based groups that are involved in a lot of these kind of things, right? Right. So... Mm-hmm. So I think that over the next... You need tragedy and hope. So. Yeah, but I mean, I think over the next 20 to 30 years, there's going to be an interesting kind of transition of, of wealth and power in, in a lot of interesting ways, primarily from west to east. Uh, and, and how that pans out, again, can be escalated or, or slowed down uh, based on some of, the, some of the actions that take place along the road. But that's the general trend, right? 
And I don't think you're going to wake up one morning and gold's going to be worth $10,000 an ounce. And there's going to be, you know, you're going to have to hunt deer in the streets of, of suburban Atlanta to, to feed, you know, like your family or anything. Right. But I do think that there are going to be parts of the country where it gets real bad and people may very well be separated from supply lines for, for significant periods of time and, and have to rely on their friends and neighbors more, more often than not. But that's going to take place at varying rates and in varying places of the country. The only thing that we really can have hope in is that right now the tools are available to our disposal, uh, unlike any other time in human history. And when H.G. Wells wrote uh, his book, A New World Order, and he talked about the fact that is that, fiction. that is fiction, when he talked about how people who would centralize in the cities would be you know, enslaved, but would have such technological superiority to the people who decided to go live in the woods and be free barbarians, as they call them, uh, kind of like, the again, the Aldous Huxley uh, Brave New World vision, right, um, where, you know, they, they could be eliminated at any time, the people living in the woods at least, because they'd be cut off from most of society. Mm-hmm. And in the case where you had a strictly cash society, where you're trading even in gold and silver, platinum, palladium, bags of rice, wheat, whatever you're trading in, right. um, it's limited by physical transaction, right? right? And, and for the first time, uh, we, we have a, an, a level on top of that in terms of cryptocurrencies. Uh, and I'm not saying that Bitcoin is going gonna, is gonna to be some kind of penultimate solution or any of the coins that have been created thus far are going to be that solution. I'm not saying that the infrastructure that supports it isn't very fragile. Um, but in a time when, when trade is going to be limited, uh, I think that it, it would be a very interesting world indeed where these kind of villages and small fiefdoms that have kind of been left for dead uh, out, out in, in, in rural America will instead be able to facilitate global commerce as well as local. Yeah, and that's something that the, um, the futurists didn't really foresee was the, was the ability to connect with, I mean, just think about it. If you have a dial tone, plain old telephone line, and a DSL router, you can get on the internet, and you can chat with people, and you can message people all over the world. So yeah, that was one of the things that was probably overlooked. But you know, you can't you can't foresee everything. You well, can it's foresee like, societal structure, which they they accurately predicted the societal structure in both of those books, yeah, or what but, it's going to be. Well, I mean, think about it like this: right now, American telecommunication and satellite companies Eat provide. Luck. Provide kind of a, kind of like gray market internet access to most of the third world, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Some places it's overtly illegal, but you can still get a signal if you're willing to pay AT and T, right? I think it would be fairly juvenile to imagine a world uh, in which that similar infrastructure would not be offered to the West by Eastern powers after uh, after this kind of transition occurs. So here's a. You know, just to piggyback on what you were saying, I have a friend of mine that does networking for an international company. He said that um, one of the one of the nodes that he had to look over, and I don't think he's with this company anymore, and he listens to the show a lot, so he's going to be laughing. One of the nodes that he had to look over, he was looking over the bill. It was fifteen hundred dollars a month for a DSL line in Siberia. Fifteen hundred dollars a month, people. But like Josh said, if you're willing to pay AT&T, the global conglomerate, they will supply you with the bandwidth. Hey, and if you're willing to fund the Muslim Brotherhood like the Nazis, then ah, then you'll get all kinds of CIA. <laughs> you'll get all kinds of good stuff down the road. Mm-hmm. And that was a by the way, the, the latest Peace Revolution podcast really does do a great job of tying everything together. Um as usual, and um 
I have to think of um, what is that show that uh, it's called For the Record? Is that what it's called or On the Record? With Greta Van Susteren. Is that what it is? That's on Fox News. No, 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 not that one. Not the garbage. For the record, I don't know. Oh God, whatever it is, he's got clips of the um, the whistleblower there from the from the um, attorney general's office. Oh yeah. Oh man, that was really incredible. All right, so anyway, I'm digressing off into a lot of stuff. Any uh, any final thoughts before we end the podcast, man? Uh, not really. Just that I do hope that two things. One, when our research collective kind of launch finally launches, we'll be able to start examining some of these topics more in depth uh, for for your listeners, not only here but in in podcast other different podcast formats. Sure. And and the other thing is that. Uh, after you go have hanky panky time with uh, with uh, Tom Campbell, I do want you to ask him whether or not he's ever heard of the Eflin Institute and what his opinion of it is. Okay, will do. I think that that would be a very I'd be very interested to hear his answer to that question. Because they were an MK Ultra subproject, right? That they were. That's what I thought, and it turned out that they were all like bogus. Like scientific studies. Well, I mean, and and what the Men Who Stare at Goats program is born out of Esalen Institute, and that's it's it's all about you know remote viewing and uh, and isolation tanks and you know modification of the psyche without drugs, mm-hmm. which is a lot of what Tom Campbell's research is about. I don't know, interesting connections. It'd be I'm I'm interested to hear his opinion on it. But I do hope that that in the future, as we both kind of move off the grid. We can kind of share our experiences with people, not only in terms of how to do that, but how to maintain a modern lifestyle or even an active alternative media lifestyle uh, while moving away from civilization. Absolutely. I saw one of the coolest little short videos in, in, that I've seen in a long time the other day about how to make a uh, – and it was funny enough that I the, the air conditioning unit that you had in your place with the makeshift air conditioning unit. It was similar to that, except he had a five-gallon bucket. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make one of those later this summer. That was very, very cool. With the top and the, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, just clever, clever ways. To... Uh, we're so smart, but yet we're so nearsighted. Anyway, all right, that's it for the show, everybody. Thank you for listening. Remember, uh, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. And, hey, move off the grid. That's going to be part of my new slogan, I guess, is that uh, get a friend, get informed, get involved, and get off the grid. Get a friend, get informed, get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Might be it. Might be the new catchphrase. All right, so um, that's it for the show, everybody. Tune in um, Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Thank you, everybody, for listening live. I saw a bunch of you guys in the chat room. I could not chat with you because I was in here bumbling around with Josh and um, basically trying to get my feet wet again for not running a show for a week and a half. So there you go. But uh, I'll be here Sunday, 11 a.m. Josh might be joining me. I don't know yet. I don't know if he'll wake up. We'll see. He might set two alarm clocks this time. But, um, yeah, like my stuff, everybody. If you like the message, share it with people you know, people you like. And, actually, I've seen the numbers and the metrics. You guys are sharing the show. So thank you so much. Once again, I love being a part of your life. Hope you love being a part of mine. And uh, let's let's try to change the paradigm somehow. Take care, everybody.